You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be, great, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. <clears throat> it is great to be able to, to gather and worship together. If you haven't met me, uh, my name is Colin, and uh, it is great to great to be together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. If you have a Bible, you should turn to Matthew 5, which is where we will be this morning. If you don't own a Bible on your way out this uh, morning, feel free to take one of the ones at the door as a gift. We would love for you to have that uh, for yourself. And as we turn to Matthew 5, I'll just open in a brief word of prayer. Father, you are good, and we praise you that we can gather together this morning to worship you. We pray as we spend time in your scripture Would your spirit be opening our eyes and warming our hearts afresh to your goodness and glory and mercy towards us? We pray would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be honoring and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, As I was studying Matthew 5 this week, a question kept coming to mind, and it's kind of the question that comes out of the text. The question is this, how do we relate to the law? It's a pretty debated topic these days, how Christians relate to the law of the Old Testament. It's a a debated topic. It has been for 2,000 years. We've been struggling over this one topic. Uh, So let me just start right now and say I don't think we're going to come to agreement necessarily this morning, but we will be studying the text. But in general, it made me question, how uh, how do I relate to the law? I think it kind of depends on our perspective, the perspective we come to the law with. If I am speeding down the highway and I get pulled over by a cop, I might be more likely to think that the law is wrong, that the speed limit should be higher, that this was unjust. But if someone speeds past me and five kilometers down the road I see that they got pulled over by the cops, I'm going to think that the law is perfect, beautiful, just, doing exactly what it was meant to do. Often the perspective we come to the law will shape how we, uh, how we interpret the law, how we understand the law. And I think that's the same with, with God's law. For some of us, we might think that God's law is a burden. Other of us, of us might think that God's law doesn't matter. But how might our perspective change if we stop asking, how do I feel about the law, and start asking, how does Jesus tell me I should think about the law? How does our perspective change when we take it off of ourselves and ask the question about Jesus? 
Our text in Matthew 5 today helps give us Jesus' perspective on the law and on the entire Old Testament, and it helps us to reconsider how we ought to relate to the law of God ourselves. But just before our text in Matthew 5, if you've been with us a few weeks, you'll know we're, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins teaching, and he does these, the, the, the most well-known part of the most well-known sermon, Beatitudes, the blessed bees. He gets through these Beatitudes, and he says at the end that you will be blessed if others revile you, if others oppress you, if others speak evil against you on his account. And then Jesus says, in light of this, he sends out his disciples to go and be salt and light in the world. He wants the disciples to go out and shine their lights so that everyone will know that Jesus is Lord. He wants his people to go out and be salt of the world, pre uh, preserving, purifying, shining, enlightening the world around us with God's kingdom. This is the call that Jesus gives his disciples. But it, it brings up a question. How exactly are we supposed to do this? What does it look like to shine our light? What does it look like to be salt in the world around us? As Jesus begins what I, I would call the body of the sermon, he gives us a bit of a paradigm to think this through. It's to answering these questions, how to be salt and light in the world that Jesus now turns in the sermon and will spend the rest of the time telling us what it means to be Christians who are salt and light in the world around us. Now, if you missed the sermon from last week, uh, we're going to be building on that basically every week from here on out. So you might want to go back and listen to that. In the same way, this sermon uh, and this text is the foundation for a lot of what comes next, especially the next six weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, all have to do with the law. And we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount until uh, about June. So you'll want to make sure we get some of these foundational things in place as we get going. But in short, Matthew 5, 17 to 20 tells us that Jesus fulfills the law, but he doesn't abolish the law. And then he goes on to say that our love for God is shown in our obedience to his commands. Jesus fulfills the law, but he doesn't abolish the law. And our love for God is shown in our obedience to all that he commands. Now we're going to unpack this statement in kind of four sections as we go along here. Here's the first two words, Jesus fulfills. I had longer sentences, but I thought, let's just, let's just cut it down. I'll read the sentence I had anyways. Jesus fulfills. Jesus doesn't abolish the law and prophets, but he fulfills the law and prophets. That's exactly what he says here in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus here is correcting what some people are saying about him. One of the things we see in the gospel accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are, are seeing what Jesus is doing, and they go around and question if he truly follows what God has commanded. Jesus is, is the, the one that the Jews are claiming to be the Messiah, and it seems like he's trampling the law of God underfoot. And the Pharisees come and accuse him. Why are you doing this but not obeying the law? 
He'll be accounted or confronted for his apparent lackadaisical manner towards the law. And not only in the first century do we have these accusations coming to Jesus, we have them in our modern day. Jesus was a revolutionary, people will say. He came to overthrow the power structures and systems in place. He came to start a rebellion. Is that what Jesus says? No, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. No, according to Jesus, the law of God is not a burden to bear or something to be gone away with. Instead, the laws and prophets of God are something to be fulfilled. And this will be seen in the weeks to come, as mentioned, especially in the next six weeks as we look at these different laws that Jesus pulls out and he explains them. But before we go on further, we have to ask the question, what does he mean by law and prophets? What does Jesus mean when he says law and prophets? When we hear these words, we might be tempted to think, to think exclusively of the chapters in Exodus, the book of Leviticus. We might think of the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all the other ones. I could sing a song, but I'm not going to. We might be tempted to think of these books, but that would be a mistake. In the New Testament, when the language of law and prophets is being used, what's actually the, the, the purpose, the point, is, is not these specific books or these specific chapters, but it's the entirety of the Old Testament. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets are the books that come after the law. They're the books that come after to explain how the people relate to the law and how God relates to his people. And we see this, I think, in Luke 24, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus, and uh, there's two disciples that he's walking alongside of, and they don't recognize Jesus, but he's talking to them, and they're mourning because Jesus has just died on the cross. And they say, surely you are the only person in all of the land who doesn't know that Jesus, the Messiah, has been crucified. And as they're walking along this road, Jesus... Uh, begins to interpret to these two disciples all these things from the law and the prophets and how they all fulfill in him. Now, he wasn't just picking a, a few verses, it seems. It says it's, he, he was talking about the whole thing, the entire Old Testament. He says it was talking to him, he was teaching them from Moses, which is another way of saying the books of Moses. And Moses is the, the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. To understand what Jesus means when he said he's come to fulfill the law and prophets requires that we take a step back and understand the purpose of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God creates a covenant with Abraham. He creates a, a, a contract that he, God himself says he will not break. He tells him that he will have descendants to make a nation. He'll give him a land. He'll, he'll bless Abraham. And through Abraham, the entire world will be blessed. From here, God calls a people to himself. He frees them from 400 years in slavery in Egypt. And he brings them to the mountain of God or Mount Sinai to worship him. And at the mountain, God calls them to himself and he calls them to obedience. He gives them a law with which, according to which they are to live. And he commands that the people renew their covenant with them, and they renew their covenant, and they say, 
we will do everything that God asks us. And two chapters later, I think, they're building a golden calf at the bottom of the mountain and worshiping that instead of God. It's worth mentioning, I think, that people in the Old Testament aren't saved by their works or merit, even though we often would like to paint the picture in that way. Rather, the people of the Old Testament are saved by the grace and mercy of God. It was by grace that God called Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. It was by grace that God freed his people from slavery. It was by grace that he brought them to his holy mountain and gave them his law with which they should live. It was by grace that God descended to his people and revealed himself to them at the mountain in, in, in all of his goodness and glory. The Old Testament people were saved in the same way people are saved today, by grace, through faith, and this is where I might get in trouble, in Jesus Christ. The thing is, in the Old Testament, they didn't have Jesus. They didn't have the incarnation. What they had were these promises and prophecies and laws and words from God pointing them to the day when one would come that would fulfill it all. In the Old Testament, their faith was a forward-looking faith to the day when Christ, was come, when Christ would come that was administered to a people through their obedience to the law. And in this way, the law of God was, as the author of Hebrews tells us, a shadow pointing forward to something greater, something better, something beyond that would save them. And just as a shadow is not the substance, so too the law and prophets are not the fulfillment but rather they point to something beyond themselves. It's like if you were, if it was a nice summer's day, you're, you're walking along the beach, you've got the sun shining on your back, you've got a loved one, a spouse, a friend, a niece or nephew, you've got your dog walking alongside you, and you have this long shadow being cast in front of you. Now, if the person you were walking alongside with began to fawn over the shadow, you couldn't help but say, what are you doing? I'm right here. It's not about the shadow. It's about the substance. Jesus is the thing, the person that the law and the prophets and the entire Old Testament is pointing to. Jesus is the one that the people have been waiting for. And he's standing before them saying, here I am. The fulfillment of everything you've been longing for. And this idea of fulfillment becomes a central theme in Matthew's gospel. Five times before the Sermon on the Mount, it will tell us that Jesus was the, the one they were waiting for. Eight times after the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew brings up this theme saying, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. God is doing what he has always said he would do. He is sending the fulfillment that they were waiting for. And the law and prophets are not abolished nor destroyed nor set aside. Rather, they find their fulfillment in Christ's obedience to the demands of the law and his obedience to the crucifixion, his triumph in resurrection, and their final culmination and fulfillment will come when Christ returns at the end of all time, at the end of the age. Christ will usher in his eternal reign and kingdom, and the full fulfillment will come to pass. The triune God that Christians worship is what, what we call immutable. He's unchanging. 
He cannot be different in the Old Testament than he is in the, in the New Testament. Otherwise, God would be totally indistinct, totally unknowable. We couldn't really know God if he's changing between the two. We don't have a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. No, we have one true God who tells us what is true and good and beautiful all the time. And the law and prophets do not pass away because they cannot pass away. And if they did, it would mean that God made a mistake. And we do not worship a God who fumbles around hoping that he made the right choice. No, Jesus said, I didn't abolish the law and prophets, but I fulfilled them. Likewise, we cannot abolish the law and prophets. Rather, we look to how Jesus treated the Old Testament. As we get into the second verse, Matthew 5, 18, here's our second, second point. Jesus upholds. Jesus fulfills. Now Jesus upholds. Jesus upholds the authority of the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament. Jesus upholds it all. Matthew 5, 18 again says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. On the tales of Jesus fulfilling the law without abolishing the law, a question arises, what do we think about when we think about the Old Testament? Some of us might think the Old Testament is boring, antiquated, outdated, maybe superseded by the New Testament. We might be tempted to think that if Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, then we have no need for the Old Testament. In fact, some have gone so far to suggest that the Old Testament is meaningless to the Christian because Jesus and the New Testament are here and they are better. Some have said things like the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster, but Jesus is a moral angel. So they say the God of the Old Testament isn't the same God as the God of the New Testament. In fact, there was one guy in history who uh, ended up being called a heretic. His name is Marcion. And he, he just took out the entire Old Testament of the Bible. And then he went through the New Testament and he cut out all of the parts of the New Testament that referred back to the Old Testament. And then here's the icing on the cake. Marcion took this verse, Matthew 5, 17, and he rearranged it to say that Jesus did come to abolish the law and prophets. There is a mighty weight against those who want to abolish the Old Testament as we see throughout history and as we see in Jesus' own example. The Old Testament is good. It is part of the good news. We cannot set it aside Jesus in Matthew 5 tells us exactly that. He upholds the authority for his disciples in the modern day. Jesus fulfills the law and prophets, but the law and prophets will never pass away. Not an iota, not a dot. These are the smallest letters and punctuation marks in the Greek and Hebrew language. Nothing from Scripture, nothing from the Bible that Jesus worked with will ever pass away, he says. The Old Testament is so surely the word of God that to remove these small notations is to change God's very word. To remove the entire testament is to remove two-thirds of God's written revelation to his people. Now, in part, Jesus' fulfillment of the law and prophets happened when Christ finished his work on the cross, yet he is still at work today. He is still ruling in the heavens. He is still sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is still in charge of all that is happening. And the psalmist tells us that the word of God stands forever.
Martin Lloyd-Jones was a 20th century English pastor, and in a sermon on this text, he said, the question of our attitude to the Old Testament inevitably raises the question of our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we think we can abolish two-thirds of the Bible and still keep Jesus? Do we think we can abolish two-thirds of what Jesus calls Scripture and still call him our Lord and Savior? Still call God's revelation good? No, the Old Testament is needed and necessary for proper Christian understanding. We can't put it aside because it pushes against our modern sensitivities, nor look with derision upon the details. Instead, we look upon the Old Testament as Jesus did, as needed revelation about who God is and how we ought to live. We may be tempted to skip over the Old Testament to get to the New. When I was younger, I certainly did this in my Bible reading. I thought, this is boring. I would get to Exodus 20 and think, I don't need anything after this because it's, it's laws. And then I would skip to Matthew. And then I would get to the genealogy of Matthew and think, this isn't any better. <laughs> Thankfully, the Lord opened my eyes to the goodness and glory contained in the Old Testament. Because apart from it, we don't understand the story at all. We cannot abandon the Old Testament. To dispense with the necessity and the authority of the Old Testament is to come to Jesus and the New Testament with a faulty understanding of who he is and what he's doing in the world he entered. Jesus upholds the Old Testament. Likewise, as his followers, and as the third point, Christians uphold the Old Testament. Christians are expected to uphold the, or the authority of the Old Testament. Christians are expected to uphold the authority of the Old Testament. Again, Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, Jesus says, in light of what he has just said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Since the Old Testament has not been abolished, the law and the prophets have not been abolished, faithfulness to God, Jesus tells us, is seen in our obedience to his commands. Greatness in the kingdom, Jesus says, is shown by submission to the law. Those who don't uphold the authority of the Old Testament will receive their just reward. Those who don't uphold what God tells us in Scripture will receive the just reward. And before we go further, I'm going to read a section out of Psalm 119, verses 57 to 64. And I read this, and it, it honestly baffles me. The psalmist says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commands. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion to all who fears you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. And this is just a section of Psalm 119. Basically, Psalm 119 in its entirety is the psalmist praising God for his beautiful, delightful, glorious law. Lovely law. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I find myself sometimes a little shocked. I don't often think of the law as this beautiful, glorious, delightful thing. When God tells the Israelites that every sorceress in the land must be stoned to death in Exodus 22, I don't tend to think of this as a beautiful thing. But the psalmist, he looks back on all of the laws of God, including ones like this, and he says it's beautiful. How does he have such a perspective? The psalmist understands that the law of God reveals the character of God to the people of God. The psalmist understands that the law of God reveals the character of God to the people of God. And the law is good insofar as it clearly displays God's character. God is so concerned for his people that he wants nothing to draw them away from him. God is so concerned with the purity of his people, the, the, the holiness, the, the set-apartness of his people, that no occultic witchery will happen in their midst because they might be drawn into falsehood. God is so concerned for his people that he wants nothing to take them away. He is so concerned for his people that he wants nothing to draw them into sin and doubt and false, idol, false idolatry. The law of God is a means of God's personal revelation to his people, and those who delight in the law of the Lord declare that the word of God is authoritative in their lives. But what does it have to do with upholding the law? Does this mean we ought to obey every Old Testament law? Isn't that exactly what Paul was warning the Galatians against? A legalism that kills because they're just focused on obedience to every single law? How do we relate to the law of the Old Testament today? This is the big question. Throughout the ages, people, pastors, theologians, from the, the very first days of the early church have worked to show a threefold division of the law. This threefold division is, is the ceremonial, the judicial or civil, and the moral aspects of the law. The ceremonial law, they say, is the law given to people pertaining to the ceremonies and sacrifices. For example, in Leviticus 16, God tells the people about the sacrifices needed to make atonement for their sins, that they have to, have to do once a year. They have to slaughter a bull and a ram, and they put the blood on the altar, and they, they, put, the, they put their hands on the head of one of the rams and send it out of the camp. They have to do this every year. There's these ceremonial, sacrificial laws which people do so that they might atone for their sins. The second, the judicial law, is the civil law given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Many of these laws are given in the book of Exodus. They talk about what do you do if your ox kills your neighbor's ox? What do you do if your ox has killed your neighbor's ox two times, two of your neighbor's oxes? And finally, the moral law, that's God's law of righteousness given first to Adam in the garden, re-given to the people at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. Of this threefold division of the law, the ceremonial laws were shadows pointing to the death of Christ on the cross. The civil laws were those given to the Israel as a nation which Christ obediently adhered to. The moral laws were laid down once and forever 
And this final law, the moral law, is shown in how we instinctively know that murdering other people is wrong, that mothers and fathers are to be honored and respected, that adultery is wrong, and many other things. God has, we are told in Romans, written it on our hearts. Insofar as the law reveals God's character, we, we likewise are called to obedience. Insofar as the law points to Jesus, obedience has occurred on our behalf. And the law has been fulfilled. The ceremonies that would occur on a regular basis, annual, at the celebrations and ceremonies that they do, these, these laws have passed away because Jesus has fulfilled these laws and there is no need for sacrifices for sin any longer. Jesus, we are told, sits down and intercedes on our behalf. The laws governing the nation of Israel Likewise, Jesus lived in a complete adherence and obedience to. He used what, what theologians call his active obedience in obeying every law laid down for the people of Israel. The civil laws that used to govern the people revealed their sinfulness and they've been, obeyed in the, they've been fulfilled in the lawful obedience of Christ. And God no longer forms a national people, Israel. Rather, he forms the church, which is not governed by national laws. But the moral law, the law which God writes on our hearts, the law which God distills in Ten Commandments, the law which Jesus distills in two commandments, is one to which we are all called to obedience. And it reminds us that we will still regularly fail and regularly fall, and nonetheless, Christ has made a way for us. And this leads to the fourth and final verse and point. Christians obey. Jesus fulfills, Jesus upholds, Christians uphold, and in light of all that, Jesus, Christians obey. Righteousness, Jesus says, is required in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse uh, 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've just stated that obedience to the moral law of God is something that we will regularly fail at. And if you know anything about the scribes and Pharisees, it's that they were religious law keepers. That's what they were known for. They were professional law keepers. And uh, they were so concerned with the law, in fact, that they would go on to... to see the law, and they would add laws around the law so that they wouldn't transgress their, their laws so that they wouldn't transgress God's law. For example, the, the law in the, one of the Ten Commandments is to observe the Sabbath. Now, we have in other places of the Old Testament that ways to observe the Sabbath means uh, not lighting a fire in your home. But the, the Pharisees would then go on to add all of these extra laws uh, you know, Jesus is walking through a field one day and he picks an ear of corn off of a, a corn field. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. <laughs> he picks an ear of corn. And uh, the Pharisees are going to accuse him and the disciples of working on the Sabbath because it says you should not work on the Sabbath. But what does it mean to work is the big question. And that's where they'll add in all these extra laws that say, well, if you carry something, then you're working. If you pick something, then you're working. If you walk a certain number of feet uh, outside of your home, you are working. 
So the, the Pharisees are these religious law keepers who add laws onto the law, and in the eyes of everyone around them are the most righteous people in the world. How are we supposed to do better than them? It's like uh, when I'm driving, I have a tendency to drive a little bit faster than I'm supposed to. And uh, when I get in a driving and I'm behind someone who follows the speed limit to the T, uh, that, that very much frustrates me. I've got no, no fault in them. You know, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. But something in me just wells up and says, why aren't you going faster? I'm the one who can't keep the law. They're doing everything right. How could we be more righteous than that person? The professional law keeper. Here's the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. As we'll see in the, in the coming weeks, the scribes and Pharisees' problem wasn't external obedience. By all appearances, they did everything right. The fault with the scribes and Pharisees was that they didn't have any internal transformation. They were doing rote external actions in the hope of earning and meriting their salvation. But Paul in Galatians 4 says, we are not under the law, and yet we're still called to obedience. We cannot earn or merit our salvations through rote external list keeping. We can't just put it on a list and check it off and say, this week I've done my duties as a Christian disciple. God, you owe me. Christianity isn't about just, just ticking things off on a list. It's about the transformation that comes in the heart. And that's not something we can do on our own. In fact, if we find ourselves stuck in cycles and cycles and cycles of trying to keep every little commandment of God and checking off everything on our list, we might find that we're a little bit more like the Pharisees than we would like to admit. Righteousness is something that Jesus calls us to, and simultaneously, it's something that we are incapable of on our own. We cannot do this ourselves. Righteousness is a gift from God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son, given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. On the cross, Paul tells us that he who knew no sin became sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is something given to us. It is not something we do or something we earn and our wicked rebellion against God is given to Jesus who bears our sins on the cross in return for his righteousness that's given to us. Those who profess faith in Christ, those who believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation are promised the spirit of Christ who dwells within us, circumcises our hearts, and allows us to walk in righteousness, not merely in external obedience, but through inner transformation. Jesus says that he will give us rivers of flowing water that will flow through us. That's the spirit in us. And some have taken this idea then to say that we are freed from all external obedience. There's nothing that Christians, that Christians ought to do. Paul in Romans 6 says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? 
But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Paul tells us that it was due to sin that the Israelites were incapable of living in obedience to the law. And the grace of God in our lives doesn't free us to licentious and lawless living, but to obedience. This doesn't mean we can go around and live however we want as if there are no rules or consequences, but instead means that we've been freed freed from sin to live in righteous obedience to the moral law of God as revealed in both the Old Testament and the New. Not that we might merit our salvation, but that we might honor God and bring Him glory. Now part of the problem is that as humans, uh, if, if you know the story of the Bible in Genesis, humans are very prone from the very beginning uh, to having issues with living in obedience to God's commands. We are all prone to, the, to lawlessness, to licentiousness, to living according to our own standard rather than God's. We think it will be easier for us if we loose, loosen what God calls us to just a little bit And we see this all over our world right now. God calls his people to sexual purity, and we live in a world inundated with pornography, adultery, premarital sex, and every other sexual proclivity under the sun. God calls his people to honor one another, but we love to tear each other down. God calls his people to unity, but we love to divide. God calls his people to be satisfied in him, yet we are constantly looking at what others have and wishing thinking we could, if only we had what they had, maybe we would find contentment. The scribes and Pharisees were legalists living their lives in begrudging obedience to the law in an attempt to earn salvation. Does that describe us? The call for Christian obedience is not the same, but the question always has to come back to the heart. Am I obeying in order that I might be saved? Or in light of salvation already achieved and accomplished for me on the cross, am I now living in joyful obedience to what God has called me to? Which is true of us? What does it look like then to obey the law of God? The Sermon on the Mount will give us many ideas, will tell us many ways in which faithful obedience to the commands of God can shape our lives. Jesus is going to challenge us to live obediently with our emotions, with our thoughts, with our marriages, with our words, with our retaliation, and even dealing with those who hate us, revile us, oppress us, and utter all sorts of evil against us. But what today is this text calling us to? I've got four brief ways that we can respond to this text. Brief, I promise. The first one is we can delight in the word. Look upon God's word and command with delight rather than derision. We want to delight in the word, not deride the word. Jesus upholds the authority of scripture, so too we ought to look upon scripture and the commands of God from this same perspective. Scripture is, as Paul tells us, breathed out by God and useful for correcting, training, rebuking, and reproving in all righteousness. Scripture, Peter tells us, is like a light in a dark place. 
It contains God's very words to his people. Why would we ever look down upon that with derision? Christian, we are called to delight in the word. When I was a kid, I thought reading in general was boring. And I thought reading the Bible was even worse. But praise be that God opens our eyes and warms our hearts to look upon his word and revelation with new eyes and as a balm to our souls. We delight in the word. Here's the second, is uh, that we read, pray, and repent. I guess that's kind of three in one. We read, we, we ought to read and pray through the law of God, particularly, I think, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 1 to 17, and confess where we have failed to live in obedience to what God calls his people to obey. Uh, there's one command in the Ten Commandments that gets a little, little finicky, is the, the command to observe the Sabbath. There's, there's a, every other command of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament. That one is not. In fact, the command to observe the Sabbath is, is listed as uh, kind of a side matter that people can agree to disagree about in some of Paul's other writings. But every other one, every other law of the Ten Commandments is reiterated in the New Testament. It's good and true in a way that God wants his people to live. God has revealed to us in Scripture how he would like for his people to live. It's not some random code of ethics. It's not some antiquated laws that we've progressed beyond. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of God's moral character, and he calls his people to obedience. We will fail, but we should fail trying rather than failing by not trying at all. And when we do fail... God is faithful to forgive those who call out in repentance and faith. Uh, I've mentioned before in a, in a previous sermon that there was a time when I was living in pretty outright rebellion against my parents where I was lying to their faces. Uh, it was not a good time in my life. But I often find myself looking at what my friends and family have and thinking that if only I had the same thing, I could be a little happier. I think sometimes we think if, if there's certain things, you know, outright rebellion against our parents is a, is, a, is a sinful thing, but covetousness is a sinful thing. We shouldn't think one is better than the other. In fact, our, our satisfaction ought to be rooted in God, not in the things we have. Studying and reading the commandments of God reminds us and reorients our needs and desires towards the way that God wants his people to live. So we delight in the word, we read, we pray, we repent, we keep the end in focus, we look forward to the day when faithful obedience will not be a struggle because Christ will return and our sinful tendencies will be no more. In scripture, we've been told the end of the story. Revelation, the book of Revelation is included. It tells us the, the end goal. It tells us what's going to happen. Christ will return, and there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. God does not lose. His people do not get cast out or destroyed. Instead, Christ returns and ushers in paradise, and sin and pain will no longer be a struggle in our lives, but obedience will be the joyful norm. Look forward to the day. Keep your sights set on the shores of heaven. Paul says, not looking behind, but keeping my eyes focused ahead in Philippians. He's able to keep running towards the prize 
in Christ. Look forward to the day, even today as we struggle. Look forward to our hope and joy and rest that is coming, and that gives us strength to go on fighting and live righteous lives in accord with God's commands through the transformation of our heart. And here's the, the final one. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in Christ who bore our sins and failings. He bore them upon a cross and he made a way for us to be declared righteous in the sight of God despite our shortcomings. We cannot do this ourselves. Christ has already done it on our behalf. And apart from him, we are doomed in our own sinfulness. But through Christ, we have been assured that our final hope, we have been assured that our final hope will come to pass. Through Christ, those who believe Those who have called upon him for salvation have this guarantee. You will never be cast out. You will never be lost. God has you in his grip. Therefore, pursue righteousness. Not to earn, but to obey. Pursue righteousness. And when all else fails, rejoice in Christ, who has earned righteousness on our behalf. We're going to close our time. I've got a couple questions to consider. Uh, they're kind of the first one's long. It might just be easier, honestly, just to, to take a photo at this point because I couldn't. I don't know what I was thinking there, you know. But here's the first one: Where is my heart? Am I like the scribes and Pharisees, working to keep the laws begrudgingly, or do I, like the psalmist, delight in the law and seek to live in joyful obedience to all that God has commanded? The second, am I more prone to add or subtract to the law? We all, I think we all come to Scripture and we all find things that maybe we don't appreciate so much, so we add things, we take things away. Which am I more prone to? And how can we be more consistent in taking God at his word and living in obedience? The reality is we're all constantly adding something or taking something away, placing burdens on ourselves or on others that Scripture doesn't command. And the warning from Jesus for those who do is severe, but his grace and mercy abound for those who call upon him in repentance. And if you have called upon Christ in repentance today, I urge you to come forward and take and eat as we participate as the body of Christ in communion. Communion is a meal we do every week here. It's an open thing for all who have professed faith in Christ to come and eat a little uh, wafer as a representation of the body of Christ broken for us and a a little bit of juice as a representation of Jesus' blood poured out on the cross on our behalf. It's a family meal, so if you're a Christian, I invite you to come. If you've professed faith, I invite you to come. Come, take, eat the body of Christ broken to you and the blood of Jesus poured out for you. As we do this, would you stand with me and we can close our time in prayer. Lord, we have seen and heard from Jesus, your son, that your law and word is good for us. Would we be reminded and empowered by your spirit to live in obedience to all that you have called us to obey? And when we fail, Father, would would we be reminded of the goodness and mercy of your son, Jesus, who bore our sins on the cross? And would we come and eat, repenting of our sin and looking and clinging to Jesus? 
Help us to fix our eyes on your son. We love you and we praise you. Oh God, our Father, our rock and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name.